This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard's the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and he's a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. And Richard, I wanted to start by informing you that Scott Immergut, our producer, and I have created a union for libertarian podcast workers, having been inspired by President Biden's executive order from February 4th. Whoops. Uh, now, now, I kid, but when I first read the details of President Biden's executive order, my reactions were, can he really do that? And that seems like a big deal. So do us a favor and, and walk us through what's in this executive order. Sure. What happens is Biden is essentially trying to play up his case for union support. And there are two avenues in which you could try to do this. One of them is you could try to pass general legislation that will make it easier for people to unionize by card check or some other device. You could try to stack the board at the National Labor Relations Act, which is your prerogative. But you could also try to do it through executive order. And what Biden in this particular circumstances wanted to do was to find a way in which he could tilt the issuance of government contracts strongly in favor of firms that have union representation. Uh, the topic here is not a small one. It's estimated that there are some 360 or $70 billion a year in these contracts that are issued. And there's no sign that the number is going to go down. Indeed, if one or another of these infrastructure bills pass, the uh, number will likely get large. And so then the question is, how is it that you try to do this? You can't do this under the labor statutes, which essentially call for some degree of neutrality that you have between union and non-union firms, and that workers are allowed not only to join unions, but to stay out of unions if they want. And so what they do is they go back to a 1949 statute, which deals with the improvement of government efficiency. And what they essentially say is, in an earlier post, the ones I did not talk about in my editorial, is that we know that that the creation of unions is really essential to the efficiency of the United States. And they tried out a series of arguments that have been made for a very long time, and namely that unions are the key to the middle class, they offer a degree of job stability, that the greatest days in American life were the 1950s when we had large prosperity and large union growth, and that this therefore proves that unions themselves are efficient. And then if it turns out that unions are efficient, uh, the argument then continues when they do the final thing, is anything which encourages unions is going to encourage uh, efficiencies in the administration of the government offices, and so therefore this is a legitimate operation. And the question is whether or not they can maintain any of these propositions. Uh, one of them is, are unions as efficient as they claim? Uh, two is the General Administrators Act dealing with this in 1948, an appropriate way to look at it. And is there something about Title VII which essentially uh, makes it impossible for the government to mandate that uh, employers only are allowed to bid if they form unions uh, to deal with this particular purpose. They're not allowed to bid if they're non-union forms. There's nothing in the particular statute which explains how it is that you unionize a firm, uh, a firm in these circumstances without taking a vote of its particular workers, without having an election, without having an election campaign. And so in the end, I think most people would look at this and saying it's a de facto ban on non-union firms bidding on government projects. Take us through how this relates to the National Labor Relations Act, because, uh, I mean, to me, uh, I've always heard that it's about uh, forming unions, helping support them. In fact, President Biden's interpretation of the NLRA is to encourage unionization. So, I mean, is, is that is that not true? Tell, tell me about that, that 
it, it, look, it's much more complicated because, in fact, the statute went through two very different iterations. The first one was in 1935 when it was proposed by Senator Robert Wagner of New York, a Democrat, and it was called the Wagner Act. And then in 1947, in the aftermath of World War II, there was a very strong anti-union bias that ran through United States and the adoption of the Taft-Hartley Act essentially cut back many of the things that went in the other direction. So in the initial bill, you could say the following thing is that the Section 7 rights that they started to talk about were, in fact, the rights of workers to form unions with the protection of government and to have employers have the duty to bargain with. When you got to the 1947 Act, two things changed. First, what happened is they announced that the right of the workers was sovereign, but they could either decide to join a union or to not join a union, as the case may be. And if they decided not to join a union, uh, that meant that there was no union representation. There are elaborate rules as to how often you could try to get a union. There's a rule about union bars. And I think it says after a union loses an election effort to take over, uh, what happens is they have to wait two years before they can try again. And then the second thing is the original Labor Act under Section 8 only had unfair labor practices by the employer. And these would include things that go beyond their common law duties. There were now duties to bargain. There was a form of coercion that you couldn't do. You couldn't discriminate against people because of their union membership and so forth. And the theory was that the only reason why you could keep a union out was because of some kind of efficiency disadvantage with what they did. You couldn't keep people out because you thought that unions were a bad idea for your particular and this gave rise to huge complexities. There were complications between rival unions to get the representation, huge battle as to how big or small you define a particular union. And right in the aftermath of World War II, there was a huge strike wave because uh, the statute, that is the Wagner Act, had been suspended during World War II. The War Labor Relations Act, which featured essentially compulsory arbitration, took place. Once that was done, there was just a huge amount of unrest about how unions would respond. And if you read any of the papers between 1945 and 1947, there were always three or four main major unions that were about to go out on strike. And unions at that day were not 6% of the population or the workforce. They were over 35%. And so it was a big deal in telecommunications communications, automobiles, steel, you name it. Uh, the Wagner Act was then displaced by Toft Hartley in the following two ways. One is it said that, you know, you don't want to join a union. You could say that and you're fine. And then they give a set of unfair labor practices that union can commit, including secondary boycotts, a very complicated situation where you don't attack directly the firm that you wish to unionize, but you attack a firm which is one of its customers or suppliers in an effort to disrupt its relationship in business. So that's the framework that comes up. And it's just inaccurate to say that this is a statute designed to encourage unionization. A more accurate point of view is it is a statute that authorizes the formation of unions and the collective bargaining system if a majority of the work in some designated unit decide that they want it, but not otherwise. Now, the question is, is it sufficient or not, I suppose? And the answer is pretty clear. The answer is no. If unions were as efficient as union representatives say, you would not see 99% of employers trying to resist unions in one way or another. You'd say, hey, I could form a, an alliance with this particular union, and I'm going to get a competitive advantage over all my rivals because I'm going to be more efficient. 
But in fact, historically, it goes the other way around. Firms have sometimes said, if you want to unionize me, I will acquiesce in that. But only if you unionize all of my main competitors, uh, which suggests essentially that you would assume as a matter of theory that unions cannot be efficient. Why is that? Because unionization necessarily divides the management function between the union on the one hand and the firm on the other. And that divided authority means that every time you try to make an adjustment inside the plant or otherwise, you're going to have to deal with the union and get its consent. So if you want, for example, uh, to talk to your workers and say, you know, do you guys think you could use a better kind of computer on your desk? That's an unfair labor practice, Tom, because the union is the sole representative of those workers. And every time you want to speak to a worker, a union rep has to be there at your side. Well, every time you put that fellow, that fellow there, that third party in, it just destroys flexibility. You decide, you know, it's better that we subcontract out certain work. Sorry, you can't do that unless you get the union consent for that as well. So over and over, what happens is divided authority leads to a form of bilateral monopoly. I can't do business without you and you can't do business without me, which means that firms try desperately, if they possibly can do it, uh, to minimize their exposures to union and will spend inordinate sums of money in order to keep them out. And then Biden, who's very much a pro-union guy, says, well, you know, I've really looked at this and there's a lot of pro-union literature out there. And we think unions are efficient. And so therefore, you're going to have to have one if you want to deal with the government. It's a complete non sequitur. I don't believe that this would stand up in court. I, I'm pretty confident it would not. But as ever, it's extremely difficult to get people to put themselves in the crosshairs and to challenge one of these things. Usually what typically happens is firms don't like to do it because they'll be blacklisted in other ways. So you get trade associations who tend to bring the challenges if they're going to be brought at all. You know, one of the ideas um, sometimes, well, borrowed from our European counterparts is to mandate that uh, either a union representative or a worker representative has to be on uh, the board of directors. I'm, I'm pretty sure I know where you fall on, on that idea, but is it, do you think it's very harmful? Do you think it's, uh, it's okay? Do you think it actually has benefits? All right, well, what you're talking about is what the Germans call Mitbestimmung, which in English is translated as co-determination. And the basic theory of that is that it is impossible to have union membership on the board that supervises the day-to-day operation in the plant because of the obvious conflict of interest. But in the alternative, it is possible to put the union on a, on a larger board that oversees that board so that when it comes to long-term political arrangements, uh, changes in legislation, changes in mergers and acquisition, the union will have a stake. Well, the first thing one would want to say, is this efficient by the standard of voluntary transaction? And if you look around and you ask yourself, how many people will have co-determination if there's no law that supports it? The answer is basically none. Uh, This was put into place, I think, around 1950 in Germany, part of the responses to the war. Political things like that often influence unions, but it's certainly not a straight efficiency play. The question then is, why is this thing inefficient? Well, it turns out that running the things on the day-to-day in the, on the floor is extremely important. But so is the decision on whether to spin off operations, whether to merge with another company, whether to make an acquisition or whatever it is. And Maybe these large structural <laughs> changes can determine whether a firm is going to grow or not grow, because it is a very common practice to grow by way of merger. And it's a very common practice to essentially reorganize your forces by having spinoffs of one business or another. You can't do that in Europe. 
and be, unless you get the union consent. And what's going to happen is they're going to ask the question, if we engage in this spinoff, not as the total value of the corporation going to increase, but will it in effect enhance the opportunities of our union members on the floor? And in many cases, it will not, because one of the reasons you spin off operations is internally they're too costly to maintain, and you could buy them more cheaply in a market transaction with an outside party. And if you think about it, the point of a union is to get yourself some degree of monopoly rent. And so almost always there's going to be some kind of a competitive alternative out there, uh, which is going to be cheaper for you to do. Uh, so the system essentially will lead to long-term stagnation, even though it will not lead to short-term disruption because of actions that will take place on the floor. And so I continue to accept the same views that I've always had. A union that is trying to deal with a plan is not a common carry. It doesn't have any kind of monopoly position, nor does the firm that it represents. And that in those circumstances, there should be no duty to deal as there is with a common carrier, if just because you're a firm. And that what happens is if you can't find these things in a voluntary market under ordinary circumstances, it's a very powerful sign uh, that the situation is highly efficient. And let me give you a nice way in which to show that. It turns out that if you could separate the monopoly issues uh, from the efficiency issues, uh, having a union can actually be a huge benefit to you. What happens is workers are often disorganized. They may not have direct contact with the boss. They may have all sorts of good ideas that you would like to milk, but you're extremely uneasy to allow them to form a union because they could turn against you by strikes or by wage demand. And so there's an institution known as the company union, which is set by the union itself. They were very, comp you know, very popular prior to the um, passage of the act. And what the firm says is, look, you give us any kind of information that you want. And we'll listen to you and we'll talk about it. So if this union comes forward and says, you know, we don't think this assembly line is organized in the right fashion. You sit down with them directly and you work it out. If somebody comes up with a really clever idea, you may give them an extra bonus in their pay packet and so on down the line. What does the National Labor Relations Act do uh, to company unions? It bans them under Section 8.2 of the original statute. Uh, it cannot be put there. Why is that? Because a company union, which doesn't have the restrictive practices, but has the market gains from efficiency, can outperform in the long run a union from the outside. That is, a company union will never create a long-term strike situation. It won't take the kind of situation that happened in 1979 uh, when the UAW bargained with uh, General Motors and said, you know, you want to lay anybody off, you, you could lay them off, but you have to put them into a rubber room, so-called, as they bounce rubber balls against the wall and pay them so long as they sit there. That essentially destroyed that particular firm. Uh, so you had a company which had close to a half a million workers in 1979. And when it went back around, you know, bankrupt around 35 years later or so, it was down to about 42,000 workers. Uh, the devastation that takes place is just enormous. And there are so many cases you see in which one firm closes down and its workers in part are transferred to another plant. And then you have the fight whether seniority is based upon work for the company or work for the company in a particular plant. Because unions always use a seniority system in order to deal with these things, and that's absolutely death for efficiency 
Why is that? Because if you have a new set of skills, your younger workers will be more up to date. They'll be more flexible in how they work. But if you have a seniority system, the people whom you value the most are the ones whom you're going to be able to have to fire first. So the whole internal governance system of a union essentially cuts against all the various situations. So I've looked at this in some detail when I've taught the labor relations course and so forth. And it's amazing. Every time you look at a particular detail, uh, what you see is a situation where union rigidity leads to a loss in productivity. In the short run, there's a transfer payment to the workers. But in the long run, the whole situation starts to fall down. So that today, when people want to argue against the firm, they're not allowed to threaten them with anything. So what do they do in very carefully, grammatically parsed language? They said, look at the firm across the street. When it got a union, it went to pieces. And then you could let them ask themselves the question, uh, will that happen to me? That's why it's so difficult for unions to organize. They can't win in a place like Tennessee because people have seen what has happened to the American companies where unions have decimated their workforce. And Biden is trying to revive this kind of thing. And he's just utterly oblivious to that part of the history, which means in the end that I think his particular movement has to be rejected as unsound. And his statement of sort of union, uh, how it's gone as existence, the wonderful world of American unionization is just a pretty bad portrait of the way the situation is on the ground. Richard, I'm changing gears for one last question here. Um, President Biden has ordered the National Archives to turn over some some visitor logs, uh, contrary to President Trump's uh, claim of executive uh, privilege. Oh, you are switching. Yes, I'm switching. Yeah. And, you know, this just happened. So I would I want to get your reaction on this. I mean, this these documents will go over in about two weeks if they're not um, uh, prevented. So uh, from from the court. And I'd just like to know, you know, should these things go over to the January 6th Select Committee? Should should sleeping dogs lie? I mean, what should happen here? Well, I mean, it's a complicated question. Uh, I think the general rule should be uh, that there are dual interests in the preservation or non-preservation, the release or non-release of documents done by a former president. And what happened is when this issue came to the District Columbia Circuit Court, the panel simply decided that Trump had no interest whatsoever. They decided in such an emphatic way, they said that even if he was sitting president, he could not. Uh, resist those being turned over. I think that's probably incorrect. It's a bit of an overstatement. But if, in fact, there are things that he can basically protect, what do you do with it? You cannot basically say when you've got somebody like Trump or anybody else, there's a per se rule that presidential documents can never be turned over. But there has to be some kind of an inquiry or a finding by looking at some limited set of documents to see whether or not this thing is a hunting expedition of one kind or another fishing expedition, or whether or not it's a bona fide inquiry after something. Or when people in the House of Representatives were after Trump's documents in order to figure out how to plan new regulation dealing with taxes, I always regarded that as something of a joke, because you know exactly the kinds of things you want to prevent, various kinds of sham transactions, dummy corporations, and the like, without knowing anything about Trump's particular papers. And there are all sorts of experts who could come forward and tell you how all these things are done. What they wanted to do is to get those things out so they can embarrass the president. And, you know, maybe they're right to do so in some other context, but not in the context of a legislative hearing. And so, in fact, the Supreme Court said when you're dealing with a prosecution on these cases, uh, particularly if it's on non-presidential documents and in state court, uh, the privileges that you're going to get are much weaker. 
But what Biden has done, in effect, is he's taken Trump's papers and said, I'm going to turn them all over with no regard to the question of whether or not executive makes any privilege, privilege makes any sense, if it only lasts for the duration that the president is in office. It's a very common practice, which a president will turn things over to the National Library, one kind, and say, after my death in 10 years, you can open these documents and review them. Well, that suggests that he has to have some leverage on them. Otherwise, what they could say is, I'm not going to sue the president. I'm going to sue the Library of Congress, and I'm going to get them to turn it over because what the president said doesn't matter. And so I think, in fact, Trump, although Lord knows, I think it would be a national catastrophe for him to run for president again. You always have to separate your politics on the one hand from your legal analysis on the other. And I think, in effect, that the position that the Supreme Court took, uh, which says that, you know, the district, the circuit court and the district court got it about right, was a serious abnegation of their duties. I think what they had to do is to examine both pieces of it. They had to examine the question as to whether or not if Trump were in office, these documents could be disclosed. My sense about it is maybe, but only under limited circumstances, not a general order. And then if, in fact, there's some limited protections, I think what you have to do is to say after he's out of office, it's a kind of a very difficult balance of interest to see whether or not the current administration has the stronger interest in getting these things out than the past president has in keeping them. And if it's about the past president's personal activities rather than about going forward, I don't think you could do it. If it's about January 6th, the way I would proceed is say, okay, tell us what the three things you want most. And then you basically look at them in camera as the judge and say, well, they are or are not relevant. If they are relevant, then you have to turn them over. And then you can say, what about the next set of documents? My guess is by asking for relevance all at once instead of in this graduated fashion, what they do is they turn a lot of things over. I'm not sure of the particular order, but my view, I think it is, that once they get them, they can publicize these documents and share them with anybody in the face of the globe. So not having at least a limited confidentiality um, order associated with their release so that you can look at them but not transfer them to somebody else is also, I think, a a little bit dicey under the circumstances. Uh, I do think it's, again, just to sum it up, is that it's one thing to be in favor of Trump resigning. If you recall, I said as early as February of 2017, this is not Orga well. I got a tremendous abuse by all sorts of people saying he was an elected official. I knew that. That's why I wanted him to resign. I didn't want to avoid the election. And now uh, that he's out of office, I think the fact that you were for or against him when he was in office has nothing to do with the legal issues. And I'm just so upset about the way in which everybody assumes that if Trump is a horrible man, it's open season. The rule of law is designed to protect your enemies as well as your friends. And in this particular case, I I think it's been pretty much disregarded. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read The Libertarian, Richard's column, on defining ideas at hoover.org every week. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.